Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti. This is part three in our basic doctrine series of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode will focus on the doctrines of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. In this episode, we'll have some discussion from Dr. Anthony Sweat, a professor from BYU, where we'll explore some of the foundational teachings that are unique to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on the Atonement, as well as how we may approach the subject with those of other faiths. And then we'll finish up with discussing some of the things that perhaps are more cultural doctrines or things that are less than official. But first, let's read from the official website of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on the Atonement of Jesus Christ. To atone is to suffer the penalty for sin, thereby removing the effects of sin from the repentant sinner and allowing him or her to be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ was the only one capable of making a perfect atonement for all mankind. His atonement included his suffering for the sins of mankind in the Garden of Gethsemane, the shedding of his blood, his suffering and death on the cross, and his resurrection from the tomb. The Savior was able to carry out the atonement because he kept himself free from sin and had power over death. From his mortal mother he inherited the ability to die. From his immortal father he inherited the power to take up his life again. Through grace, made available by the Savior's atoning sacrifice, all people will be resurrected and receive immortality. The atonement of Jesus Christ also makes it possible for us to receive eternal life. To receive this gift, we must live the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes having faith in Him, repenting of our sins, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring faithfully to the end. As part of His atonement, Jesus Christ not only suffered for our sins, but also took upon Himself the pains, sicknesses, and infirmities of all people. He understands our suffering because he has experienced it. His grace or enabling power strengthens us to bear burdens and accomplish tasks that we could not do on our own. Faith in Jesus Christ Faith is a hope for things which are not seen, which are true. It is a gift from God. Faith must be centered in Jesus Christ in order for it to lead a person to salvation. Having faith in Jesus Christ means relying completely on him and trusting in his infinite atonement power, and love. It includes believing his teachings and believing that even though we do not understand all things, he does. More than passive belief, faith is expressed by the way we live. Faith can increase as we pray, study the scriptures, and obey God's commandments. Latter-day Saints also have faith in God the Father, the Holy Ghost, and priesthood power, as well as other important aspects of the restored gospel. Faith helps us receive spiritual and physical healing, and strength to press forward, face our hardships, and overcome temptation. The Lord will work mighty miracles in our lives according to our faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ, a person may obtain a remission of sins and eventually be able to dwell in God's presence. Repentance Repentance is a change of mind and heart that gives us a fresh view about God, about ourselves, and about the world. It includes turning away from sin and turning to God for forgiveness. It is motivated by love for God and for the sincere desire to obey His commandments. Our sins make us unclean, unworthy to return to and dwell in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, our Father in Heaven has provided the only way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Repentance also includes feeling sorrow for committing sin, confessing to Heavenly Father and to others if necessary, 
forsaking sin, seeking to restore as far as possible all that has been damaged by one's sins, and living a life of obedience to God's commandments. Here now is our interview and further explanation of the doctrine of the atonement with Dr. Anthony Sweat. This episode's guest is a return guest from a previous episode that we had almost a year ago. Doesn't seem like that long, but it was. Uh, Anthony Sweat, thank you for coming back on. So happy to be with you again. Nate. And Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, we're we're gonna go in the next in our basic doctrine series, and this one's uh, anything but basic, but it is what we're calling it the the doctrine of the atonement, uh, a weighty and important subject for sure. But uh, let's start out with with setting the foundation of what we can say is is the doctrine of the atonement. What can we even say that qualifies as that? Uh, that's a really good question. I think the most basic uh, is, you know, you can go article of faith that we believe that through the atonement of Christ, by obedience to the ordinances of the gospel, and we we'll, might touch on this, all yeah. mankind may be saved. And yeah. That, you know, the basic, basic teaching of the atonement is that Jesus, you could use whatever scripture word you want to pick out of the scripture. <laughs> you know, there's lots of different metaphors, whether it's, that he ransomed for us. He broke down the middle wall of partition to quote Paul, you know, made himself an offering for sin. You know, the basic that we need to teach and the basic that we need to believe is that Jesus has reconciled us uh, with the Father and helped us overcome the things that impede us from being in his presence and that he's the only way. And how do we know that? How, how have we come to that? Is there a source that we can come to or is this kind of like a combination of so many scriptures that have brought us to that as the core. Yeah, atonement. I think I think um, one of the best places to go. You know, we often don't think when we think of the core basic doctrines of the church. Section twenty of our doctrine and covenants is known as the church's articles and covenants. It was meant as a constitution for the church when the church was organized in April of eighteen thirty. I think it has the best summary definition of the atonement uh, and and what our doctrine is on it. When this was put together, it was first put together by Oliver Cowdery. He was commanded in section 18 to go through the scriptures, in particular the Book of Mormon, and to pull together all the points mm. of the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of the Lord's church. Okay. And this be, that became the foundation. And then Joseph Smith, by inspiration, augmented and added upon it. And I just love this summary definition, right? This I'm in section, Doctrine and Covenant section 20. I'll start in verse 19. It says that uh, God gave unto them commandments, meaning his children, that they should love him and serve him. Verse 20, but by transgression of these holy laws, man became sensual and devilish and became fallen man. Wherefore, the almighty God gave his only begotten son, as it is written in the scriptures, which have been given of him. And then it talks about uh, in verse 22, he suffered temptations and gave no heed. 23, he was crucified, died, and rose again on the third day. Verse 24, and ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father. And then verse 25, that as many as would believe and be baptized in his holy name and endure in faith to the end should be saved. And then it gives some of the other basics of the gospel. And then it says in verse 30, and we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we also know that sanctification through the grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ is just and true. Yeah. Uh, that's as basic as it gets. Okay. Uh, and I think it's a good summary of what our scriptures combined would teach on the subject. Okay. That's awesome. That's a great source. Yeah. Now, one of the things that we talk about is, or I think it was Bruce R. McConkie that talked about, is that the three pillars? Yeah. Yeah. And and how— Creation, fall, atonement. Right. That, that you can't separate those. They kind of all connect. And, yeah. And in other episodes, we'll talk about the plan of salvation, which kind of is the the fall and, and all that. But so focusing on this atonement, one of the things that comes up is we we sometimes speak of Jesus and the atonement. Yeah. As if they're two separate things. Yeah. What's the what's the, the right way of looking at that? I think that's been a big push recently by the prophets, seers, and revelators, if you pay attention to their teachings, their training, uh, their general conference talks, they are very clear to not separate the atonement from Jesus Christ himself. If we're, if we're not careful, we can talk about the atonement as though it's this self-existing entity, like the economy or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you can't divorce uh, uh, the atonement from Jesus as the Redeemer, the person, the man, the Son of God. Uh, it's something he did. It does not exist independently of him. Yeah, and we say that because it's like he performed the acts of the atonement. Like, yeah. like this was the check marks. <laughs> he did this, yeah. he did this, and that those were the acts of atonement. And, and you know, using another Book of Mormon, and often when we talk of the atonement, the basic of atonement is that Christ paid the price for our sins, Yeah, uh, suffered and died for us. But if you quote Alma chapter 7, verse 11 to 14, we also believe that related to that is that Jesus, you know, that he suffered all the pains of mankind, that he went forth suffering temptations and infirmities and afflictions. And that wasn't just a one-time, right? that wasn't just a one-time suffering like, oh, Jesus once felt temptation in the garden of Gethsemane or on the cross. That was his entire life. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, if Christ is living a sinless life, experiencing humanity. Being baptized. Yeah, to, co- to conquer fallen man, the effects of the fall, then his whole life really is the atonement. It's not an event. It's who Jesus is. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's more in language than yeah. how people believe it. But yeah. sometimes that's how we end up developing beliefs. Yeah. Is how we speak of them. And, and that would be good for any listener that, again, just to take that cue from the prophets, when you speak of the atonement, to call it the atonement of Jesus Christ. Right. Um, yeah. And so with that, to con- kind of continue that, understanding that when we speak of these things, they, they should be kind of mentioned, well, they should be mentioned together. There is another thing that should be mentioned together, and that is Gethsemane and the cross. Yeah. But yet, it feels a little weird talking about those two things again, as if that is the the atonement. Yeah. So, yeah. but where where does where does that kind of come into play when we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane? We seem to be very Gethsemane heavy. Yeah. In our culture, and we are. Uh, and by you know, interestingly, the emphasis on Gethsemane is not in the scriptures. Uh, there is some emphasis on Gethsemane. But if you read the scriptures, and I'm paraphrasing some research that's being done right now uh, by my colleague John Hilton III at BYU, the scriptural emphasis is on the cross and to remember that Jesus died for us. That doesn't negate what happened in Gethsemane, 
but that the atonement is the all-encompassing his life, his his suffering in our behalf, and the giving of up of his life. Yeah. Most of the emphasis on Gethsemane comes from general conference talks and prophetic teachings. I seem to recall that the Doctrine and Covenants gives insights, the bleeding from every pore. Yeah, section stuff. nineteen yeah. does. So yeah, some of the some of the modern day scriptures can kind of yeah. emphasize that part of it too. And they do. Yeah, they definitely do. But I'd be I'd be careful that and it's a good thing to say that we, uh, as we teach our basic doctrines of the atonement, that we don't think the atonement only took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. Uh, that the atonement also included Jesus's voluntarily giving his life to die on the cross. Yeah. Um, and also uh, to rise from the tomb. That's all part of the atonement. Uh, so really, we're talking three locations, garden, cross, and his and sepulcher where he yeah. was buried and, and came forth. Yeah, but even then, if we we want to be careful to not overemphasize just that part, right? Yeah, because yeah. there's so That's much more point. to his life, and yeah. and if the idea of the atonement is to bring a oneness with God, then we must recognize his life as that great whole. Yeah, and I think you know I I, I don't want to if I tangentialize you too much on this basic, <laughs> you just pull me right back, Nick. No, okay? no, that's all right for for anybody listening and for myself in particular when we only talk about the atonement as conquering sin and death, and I don't want to minimize that. That's the major issues keeping big. us from God. That, that's pretty big. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I remember when I was a kid hearing the hymn, I need thee every hour. And I remember thinking, well, no, I, no, I don't. Like <laughs> I've been taught sin and death, the two things, you know, Jesus yeah. conquers sin and death for us. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I'll need him when I die and need to resurrect and I need him when I sin, which isn't every hour. You know, I'm, ask my mom. It might be every other hour, but not every hour. But as I've come to grow older, and I think as you have as well and anybody else, you start to realize that Jesus's divinity, you know, which you can't separate from the atonement, his act of making us at one with God, it's, it, it extends much more beyond sin and death. Uh, you know, it extends into his empathizing his suffering with humanity, uh, his strengthening to help us overcome temptation. His his atonement really does extend into to bless every aspect of our life to help us in being right with God. Yeah. I want to say it it seems simple that we can say that Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his experiences are the atonement. And it is through his life, teachings, and his death and resurrection— his suffering, death, and resurrection. Yeah. That we are able to return to live with God. Yeah. And that that is the core in that respect. And I think that that's a pretty safe place to go. There are other things that often are taught alongside the atonement and, here, and, and lessons and yeah. manuals. Yeah. And I think that they're relevant to our discussion. For one, I, I'm curious about this notion that we hear and maybe this is a philosophical question, that we speak of Jesus Christ as being both an immortal God and a mortal man. And I, it feels to me like he's like this centaur-like figure where he's got two different beings in yeah. one thing. And that just seems to feel somewhat in conflict with the idea that we are and can, we are, we all have a divine nature. Yeah. Is there, why do we te- talk about Christ as he's this dual being? centaur-like thing. Yeah. 
And I, I think there's been enough prophetic teachings that, you know, from, if you did any simple general conference search, you know, from his mortal mother, Mary, he inherited the ability right. to die from his immortal father, God, our father, he inherited the ability to overcome death. Right. I think we, we talk about those dual natures because we want to talk about Jesus's power to conquer death, which you and I do not have. Right. And he says in the New Testament and in other places in scripture that God gave him that power. And, and so I think that's where we get this dual nature, but I wouldn't confuse that idea that God gave Jesus power to conquer death with the fact that Jesus wasn't human. He was human in every sense of the word that you and I are. You know, he was born, uh, he, he was a baby, he had to grow and develop, he had to learn how to walk, he had to learn how to talk, uh, he had to make friends, he got sick, <laughs> he got tired, he got hungry, he felt emotion, he felt pain, uh, he felt everything that humans do. And so, we really do need to be careful in that when we talk about Jesus' dual nature, that we don't minimize his humanity. His humanity was central to his divinity. As is ours. As is ours, yeah. 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 I think that, to me, the, the atonement is a path. Yeah. It is the path back to God, but it was Christ's path, too. It yeah. was what he did to show us that way. Yeah. And so, I, I think that that's think part that's well of said. the atonement. Yeah, I think that's really well said. So, yeah, not a centaur. Not a centaur. <laughs> he, is, he was a human. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I do think, you know, taking an alternate translation of John chapter 1, when it, in English, it's rendered, King James renders it, that the word was made flesh among us. Yeah. It could be rendered. I've read some other scholars who basically, to put a colloquial saying, what they were trying to say with that was, Jesus became one of our fellow campers almost. That he was he he's doing this with us. And that's a big big thing uh, to never diminish in him. Yeah. The other thing that comes up is coming stemming from the scripture and the Old Testament about being a savior on Mount Zion. And what that implies can be is is very individualistic. So what I mean by that is some people interpret that language that we have this heavy burden to save others. Yeah. And that through that burden, we see people almost burn themselves out, if not burn out, because they've taken on a responsibility that isn't theirs. Yeah. So what is a savior and how are we to be saviors on Mount Zion and not think that we're responsible in the same way that Christ is? That's Yeah, that's, those are really big questions. Um, I would... You know, maybe so far in our discussion, maybe this is a good point to bring it up. You cannot disconnect the blessings of the atonement from the ordinances of the gospel. Okay. Now, everybody, you know, if we're teaching people basic doctrine, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, Christ's ransoming, you know, offering himself in behalf of humanity, everybody will receive blessings from that offering. For example, and this is the good news of the gospel— we believe that everybody will go to a kingdom of heaven. Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, right there in verse, I think it's verse 40 to 42, uh, it says that he saves all. It says it twice, almost like, are you getting the good news? <laughs> he yeah. saves all in a kingdom of heaven, a telestial heaven, a terrestrial or a celestial heaven. That is good news that you and I should go rejoice on the housetops to everybody. 
Now, the reason why I say that though is because while there are general blessings from Jesus's offering for humanity, there are selective blessings also. And the only way you and I gain full access to the blessings of the atonement are through the ordinances of the gospel. And ordinances is a fancy word, but it's it's the outward acts through authority that fully bind us to Jesus. So and, and to I, the Father. And to the and therefore to the Father. Yeah. And this is a long roundabout to answer no, your no, question. No, no, get to it. I, I love it. Because one of the biggest things that I've realized is I am not trying to qualify myself for heaven. I'm trying to qualify myself for Jesus so that Jesus can take me to heaven. Okay. Because I am not going to go into heaven on my merits. My merits are lame. Um, <laughs> okay. But I can go into heaven on Jesus's merits. What, what Jesus wants to see in me is, am I one of his disciples? Am I a disciple bride? Have I wedded myself to him? And, and marriage is actually a really good metaphor because I'm married to my wife and, uh, you know, the sweatheart as I like to, to call her. And, <laughs> and my wife has all these skills and capacities that I don't have. But the moment that I joined my life to her through covenant, all of her gifts and abilities now became part of my life. And the two gifts and abilities I have now became part of her life. <laughs> and using that as a metaphor, and, and there's lots of metaphors to try to understand the atonement. But Jesus says in the book of Jeremiah, I am married unto you. Uh, in Isaiah, he says, thy maker is thy husband. You know, Hosea chapter two is an entire metaphor about Jesus's marriage to us. And so if we view it like that, when you and I became metaphorically married to Jesus, we did it through baptism. And when we got baptized, that's an ordinance where we became one with the Lord. And when we do that, all of his gifts and blessings become our gifts and blessings. His purity is now my purity. His qualifications for heaven become mine. And so, at, to quote section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Jesus at the judgment bar will say, Father, behold the suffering and death of him who did no sin. Behold the blood that was shed. And then he says, wherefore, spare these, that's me and you, who believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. That relieves a huge burden from me as an individual, because now, because of the atonement of Christ, because of his qualifications, and he's the only one uh, qualified for heaven, I'm, I can't. Therefore, I'm trying to show Jesus that I love him and that I'm loyal to him as a disciple bride. And that relieves a lot of burden. So, to the point of how do you and I become saviors on Mount Zion? Well, you and I aren't going to save a soul, um, and nor can we. The only thing we can do is help point people to Jesus, and Jesus will save them. And if we can do anything, we help either provide the ordinance— in the Savior's name and through the priesthood authority that he's granted for the living or the dead, or we help push them, guide them, teach them, exhort, expound, use, use whatever missionary word you want to use. <laughs> okay. So that they can get the ordinances. That's our, that's our burden as Saviors on Mount Zion. But the burden to literally save somebody is not ours to bear. Right. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, no, that was, was good. good. No, and, and the thing is, is when we have experiences like that or where we have discussions like that, I think part of it goes to show we sometimes need to be careful what we teach because we don't always think of what it implies. 
And so when when we're as missionaries sharing things about the atonement, there's a lot of loaded language that could come along with this that unless yeah. we set the foundation for it, we probably shouldn't teach it. Yeah. And and then the case of teaching someone from another faith, there are different denominations. People will come to this discussion with a very different understanding of what we talk about when we say the atonement. Yeah. They may not even use that word. And, and by the way, the, the atonement is generally a Latter-day Saint uh, terminology. Right. And we should be mindful of that alone, that, that uh, they would use different terminology. Yeah. Um, what are some of the ones that people use? Oh. Uh, some people might even say, is it the passion yeah, for Catholics? I mean, for, yeah, if you want to use the, the oldest word, it's the, you know, the, the passion of Christ, which is his suffering and death and and, and resurrection, you yeah. know. They might use the word redemption through Jesus, salvation through Jesus. But atonement, to say the atonement of Jesus is, pre- is pretty central to our terminology. Yeah. As we're talking about other religions, one of the points that come up with other faiths when it comes to the atonement of Christ is the role of grace and works. That kind of debate happened a lot on my mission in the South yeah. where things were very, what we would call grace-related. Yeah. So let's address the, the topic of grace and works with respect to the atonement in a Latter-day Saint context. Yeah. So what would that be? Well, the first thing I'd say is we are talking about grace more in our church than we ever have been. Okay. Uh, we are, if I can borrow a scriptural phrase, growing in grace. <laughs> okay. You can run simple, if, you wanted, if anybody at home is listening, go on to... Uh, the LDS General Conference corpus, and just search the word grace, and it will break down by decade or words per million, how often different things are said in General Conference. And we say the phrase grace today in the decade of the 2010s, uh, something like 400. Per- I mean, it is, it is, so, it is a huge increase, especially in compared to, for whatever reason, in the, mid, uh, you know, the mid-1900s, we weren't using the word grace very much. And probably the reason why is because grace became synonymous uh, generally through Protestant Christianity that all I have to do is believe or confess Christ and I will be saved. Uh, And so we started to say we don't believe in salvation by grace. What we were saying is we don't believe in salvation just by By believing or saying, saying I believe in Jesus. We believe there's more involved. So that's why there became this kind of pushback in general from Protestant Christianity saying Mormons don't believe in being saved by grace. And uh, to share a story, I one time had a really friendly discussion. It actually was very friendly with a evangelical minister. And he said to me, help me understand where you Mormons are coming from on, on grace and, and works and and he's like, and, and, and I said, brother, we believe through the grace of Jesus Christ, we will be saved. I quoted him Lehi in the Book of Mormon. I quoted him section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And he says, but if I go out and ask all the members of the church, they think they have to do all these things. And, and, uh, and I said to him, hey, I, I could pay 20% tithing. I could set up every metal chair ever, you know, for every <laughs> meeting uh, you know, I could go to church 10 hours, go to the temple every day. None of those things will save me. It's only by Jesus's grace or his divine help that will save me. And then I said, by, by obeying his gospel. And he goes, what do you think the gospel is? And I said, we have to have faith in Christ, meaning we trust him and that he is the way. We have to repent, meaning we align our life with his will and his teachings. 
Uh, we have to then get baptized and make a covenant commitment to be one of his disciples. And then we try to receive this spirit and follow it and be loyal to that the rest of our life. Yeah. And when I said those things, he goes, works. He goes, that's a works-based salvation. And I said, well, what do you think somebody has to do to be saved? And he says, well, if they will just confess that Jesus is the Christ, they will be saved. And I couldn't help but I said to him, works. And he goes, oh, don't. He goes, don't you do that to me, brother. He goes, that is not works. And I said, well, why not? Under the same definition. I said, they still have to do something. And he goes, but it's what's going on inside their heart. And I said, well, it's what's going on inside with my heart too. And, And I had a moment of clarity as we were talking about this. I said, the only difference between you and I, we both believe that our works don't save us. I said, the only difference between you and I is you believe in having full access to Jesus's grace by confessing him. And I believe in having full access to his grace by making a covenant with him. And that really is the difference. When the Lord and when the Father and the Son appeared to Joseph Smith, according to the 1842 account, it says they had broke the ever, Christianity has broke the everlasting covenant. Or to even take our 1838 account, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men. Then listen to this phrase. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Now, if I talked to any of my Christian friends and said, do you deny the power of God? They would say no. Yeah. They would say God is the most powerful being. So what does that phrase mean? Well, if we cross-reference that with Doctrine and Covenants uh, section 84, verse 20 to 21, in the ordinances of the gospel, the power of godliness is made manifest. And without the ordinances, the powers of godliness are not made manifest. So now put that together. Joseph, they teach about me, but they deny the ordinances that give the full power for my grace. Mm -hmm. That's really important to know, number one, where are we coming from in the restoration we're saying this is a restoration of ordinances. Yeah. This is a restoration of authority so that you and I can have full access to Jesus's grace. And number two, it answers the quandary about works. Um, it's not about works. It's about ordinances. Um, and uh, the only thing that works do uh, is they don't save us, but they might help us uh, to be able to receive the ordinances and to remain in the ordinances. Well, and it's funny too because one of the things that came to me with my experience in the South was salvation. First off, means different things. Yeah, there's very a much very so. different concept of heaven. To Latter Day Saints, salvation almost feels like the minimum. Like I'm yeah. saved from death, but that's not it. Yeah, is what am I being saved to? Yeah. And, and the idea of being saved to be exalted is to live God's life, yeah. to live like and with God. Yeah. Therefore, these ordinances coach us, teach us how to be like God. Yeah. And God is faithful in that he keeps his promises. Yeah. So in order for us to be like him, we need to make and keep promises. You just you just said you just paraphrased Joseph Smith. If God is faithful, you be faithful. Right. Is if God is honest, you be honest. Yeah. I and mean, we have to learn to keep covenants. Right. And and so I mean, in the New Testament, we definitely have Paul and James apparently contradicting each other. Uh huh. And and again, we can go on a whole discussion of of who they were talking to and cultural, you know, all that stuff. But 
this does bring up other cultural doctrines uh, that, that have come up, such as the idea that the atonement makes up the difference of what we, we do our best and the atonement makes up the difference. Yeah. Some people have had issue with that phrase and others completely get it. Yeah. Um, how would you interpret this making up the difference atonement? Well, idea? you know, this, this is the problem of when we do talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ, it's something that is very basic, as you said, Nick, when you started the podcast. And I think any listener right now would go like, yeah, I get it. I get that. <laughs> but then the moment we try to explain it to somebody, we generally turn to metaphors and right. analogies or parallels, as I just did with marriage earlier. Yeah. And frankly, Jesus, and Jesus does it did. too. Yeah. So it, we, we shouldn't criticize the use of metaphor. Or right. The problem with metaphor is every metaphor falls short at some point. Every metaphor breaks down at some point. And so when when we take the metaphor like of the bicycle, the parable of the bicycle, yes, coming from Stephen Robinson's classic book, which did so much good for the church and continues to uh, believe in Christ, you know, you give me all you have, all your pennies in the piggy bank for the girl who's trying to buy the bike. Yeah. And she can never earn enough. And then her dad pays the difference. Well, the problem, he, he wasn't trying to you know, say that we have to do everything possible because the irony of it is you and I never do everything possible. That's why we need a redeemer. And so he wasn't trying to say that you have to do everything that you possibly can do. Some people have taken it that way. That's why now we have Brad Wilcox yeah. to offer kind of a, a course. And I'm using popular, uh, more generic sure. teachers. Obviously, I think the brethren have been teaching this clearly, but I'm talking about things that go out in the popular culture. Right. You know, Brad Wilcox now has a great phrase where he says, the atonement doesn't make up all the difference. It makes all the difference. Right. And he's given a new parable, the parable of the piano teacher. Right. So you and I have to find not only a parable that helps us understand the atonement of Christ, um, mine is marriage, but even that parable, that metaphor falls apart. We also have to recognize where the metaphor falls apart and isn't true. Yeah. Uh, which comes back to you and I, being good scriptural scholars and listeners <laughs> to prophets, seers, and revelators. Yeah. And we actually have an episode, one, I think it's our fifth or sixth episode of this podcast, where we had Taylor Halverson come in and talk about metaphors mm -hmm. and, and using those as teaching methods. And he also said, you have to understand that these are meant to teach a principle, yeah. not all principles. Not all principles. And, yeah. and understanding where those limitations are. So this idea of the atonement of Jesus Christ making up the difference if that helps you, I guess that's fine. But I also think that sometimes that does put a, a misplaced emphasis on what we do. On what we do. As some form of payment. Yeah. And and the idea of payment can even be problematic for yeah. some people. But it we can have, be very mercenary. It can be very Yeah. yeah. Like like God's alone officer or uh -huh. something. <laughs> In, instead of relational. Right. And 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 I understand even where that comes from because we do have like Elder Packer's talk about that again a metaphor a metaphor that he was trying to teach something yeah and his metaphor of of justice and mercy right that you're getting at yeah. yeah and that that we then say well let's dig a little deeper into that and it's no don't yeah use something else to dig deeper yeah and and so that that certainly comes up for sure and maybe that's where i i, I use the word relational to me uh, it, it it is a relationship uh, with Christ, which back to the marriage metaphor, mm -hmm. I don't think in terms of payments and bars and 
and doing my best and check marks. I, I don't process things that way personally. Now, some people out there may. For me, I, I do understand relationships, and I do understand when I'm loving people and in good harmony with people. And so I like to use the word loyalty. And, and maybe that's what Nephi was getting at, or third Nephi even, with endure to the end. I like to use the word be loyal. Uh, be loyal, be dedicated. Maybe another word is dedicated. Maybe another word is committed. Uh, I can understand that. I, I, I can't do perfect. I, I can do loyal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't do do my very best every day because hang around with me for a day and you're going to see that some days I just don't do my best. But I can do love and I can do loyalty. And I think all the listeners out there can too. And that's, yeah. if there's missionaries, that's what, that's what we should drive people to do is, is be loyal and loving to Christ. And if, if you say, if Jesus says, do you love me? And they say, yes, yay, Lord, you know I love thee. Then not only does he say, feed my sheep, but he says, then join my church, join my covenant. Keep my commandments, do all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, be baptized, put my name upon you, become a disciple. That's what he's wanting us to do. Yeah. All right, last question. Okay. And this one came up, admittedly, this came up in a elders quorum lesson. And so many fun things yeah, come up in elders quorum lessons. places. That's um, always the preface to every good discussion <laughs> good right there. Good story. Um, that someone made the statement that through our own actions, we can take burdens from Christ. Like our righteousness somehow has an impact on the burdens that Christ either felt in the atonement or even continues to feel. Where do we have any substance to this notion? Well, or I think, we? again, this is, I think this is a remnant of taking metaphors too far. Okay. So James E. Talmadge, uh, sorry, James E. Faust gave the great talk where he took he took my licking for me. Remember about the boy that the teacher was gonna yeah. back in the days when teachers used to <laughs> whack their ruler. students with yeah. the ruler. And he gives the story. I think it was Big Jim, if I'm remembering right off the top of my head, <laughs> that he stepped in for this scrawny, you know, weak, malnourished kid, Big Jim, this big strong kid, and you know, took his licking for him. So some people then take teachings like that and say, well, therefore, if I didn't make the mistake, Jesus wouldn't have had to take that particular lashing. Or maybe using another teaching, you know, people say, well, in the garden and on the cross, uh, Merrill Bateman taught. And again, this is back to doctrine. Doctrine is not established by a single statement made by a single leader on a single occasion. Yeah. There's a great 2007 statement uh, that was put out by the church. It was called Approaching Mormon Doctrine. I understand the, the name change style guide today. <laughs> but in, in that, they said that not, not every statement ever made by a general authority necessarily constitutes doctrine. A single statement made by a single leader on a single occasion often represents a well-considered opinion, but is not meant to be binding upon all church members. Yeah. So, and by the way, it may very well be true. I don't know. But Elder Bateman in General Conference said that in the garden and on the cross, it wasn't a collective mass that Jesus suffered. He said it was an intimate, not just infinite, an intimate atonement that he suffered my sins, basically, my pains individually, that it wasn't a generic humanity that he saw individual faces even. I'm paraphrasing him a little. And so then some people say, well, if that's the case, then every time I, I don't sin, it saves Jesus' suffering. 
I just personally don't believe that. I think it's taking the concepts too far. I think the suffering was that Jesus, if we want to quote the scripture, section 88 says that Christ descended below all things. He, he suffered the very depths of hell, all human pain, all human suffering, all human sorrow in some way incomprehensible to you and I, uh, so that he could ascend above all things. That's what we believe is our core or our basic doctrine. And, and I personally would leave it at that, uh, that Christ offered that. He said, I'll descend below them all, suffer the very worst, and give my entire life and conquer both of those things for humanity. And whoever will then join themselves with me, I'll take you into the Father's kingdom. Not a one-for-one ratio. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and talking about this. As we, again, go back through this, and I hope people listen to this a second time, not just so we can get more clicks, but because there's probably a lot of phrases that we've said in the minutiae that may get glossed over very quickly. But to understand the atonement is a very... It's a very unique blessing that we have as members of the church. Can I just add one last thing? In go, yeah, go for it. I would add not just to understand the atonement, but to believe it. If, if I can say one thing that I think where we could work, there's, I shouldn't say one thing, there's lots of areas where we can learn from our general Christian brothers and sisters. If I'm in a room of a thousand general Christians and I ask them how many of them believe that because of Jesus' sacrifice, that they will be saved. Now, I, as you said, Nick, salvation means different words. Yeah. Uh, 999 of them will say, amen, uh, hallelujah, yeah. praise the Lord. They fully believe it. They have confidence in it. They have hope in it. They have trust in it. And I greatly admire that in them. The only one that might not say it is somebody who was asleep or didn't hear it. <laughs> Whereas if I get in a room of a thousand Latter-day Saints, members of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and say, because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, how many of you believe will be saved? Now, some because of terminology, there might be differences there, but I'm not sure sometimes we have the same gusto. And if I could just in conclusion say, if we understand what Jesus has done for us and we understand the power of covenants, if we are part of the covenant, we shouldn't hesitate to say, I am 100% confident that I will dwell with God the Father because of Christ's merits, not my own. It's not a it's not a self-aggrandizing thing. It's a, it's giving the glory to Jesus where it belongs. So yeah. not just to understand the atonement, but to really, truly believe in it. And that's where the gift of hope comes. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And, and to, to kind of say this, this ordinances-based thing, I mean, we have things like the sacrament that help us connect yeah. with that and, and understand it deeper each and every week. And there's so many other ways that the ordinances that we have in the church do that. And so that's the fun challenge in yeah. a way is to, is to use those ordinances as opportunities to connect further with the, the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ. So thank you again for, for coming in and Happy talking to about, talk it. about it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this important episode in our basic doctrine series, part three on the atonement of Jesus Christ. There really is so much to be talked about with this particular doctrine. It's really hard to put it all under one heading and in one lesson. But we hope that this is a starting point, a place where you can look to understand that there is a simple and pure way to teach the doctrine of the atonement without needing to try and explain how it works or all the little things in which we may have personally interacted with the atonement. 
and maybe find ways to invite other people to experience it themselves. But thank you again for listening. Please stay tuned to further episodes of this podcast as we will bring you further episodes in this Basic Doctrine series. Stay subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on Spotify. Thanks for listening.